Please, congregation, turn within your Bibles in the first place this morning to Psalm 8. So, continuing our series to the Belgic Confession, we come to the creation and fall of man. And so we'll read from two portions in God's Word, the first from Psalm 8 and the second from Romans chapter 3, before turning to Article 14 of our Confession. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, the Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's turn also to Romans chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 9 and read through verse 28. And this too is God's holy word. Romans 3 at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. And no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from the works of the law. There is the reading of God's holy word. Let's also turn to Article 14 of our Confession of Faith. Page 166 in our Forms and Prayers books. Article 14. We believe that God created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in his image and likeness, good, just, and holy, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence. But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received. And by his sin, he separated himself from God who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts which he had received from God, and he retained none of them except for small traces which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the Scripture teaches us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but a slave to sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself? Since Christ says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. Who can glory in his own will when he understands the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves by ourselves? but that our ability is from God. And therefore, what the apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work, as he teaches us when he says, without me, you can do nothing. This, the Church of Christ, does believe and confess throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to Article 14 of our Confession, we're coming to the story of mankind. Here we learn where we've come from, and here we learn where we're going. Here we learn why this world is the way that it is. Here we learn why we are the way that we are. Article 14 not only reminds us of our original dignity, that is how we used to be, but also presents us with our present problem, namely what we've become in our sin. At the start of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin writes that nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, namely the knowledge of God and knowledge of of ourselves. And so having given our focus to the knowledge of God in Articles 1 through 13, 
we now come to the knowledge of man, to the theology of man. In this article writes, one pastor summarizes God's revelation concerning man in the light of which alone we can learn to truly know ourselves. And so we all have to recognize this morning is that the doctrines set forth here in Article 14 are of truly profound significance for the Christian life. They illumine the, the struggles of the human heart which cries out for peace with God and these doctrines point us the only resting place for our souls. This is what these doctrines do for each and every one of us this morning. They tell us who we are. They tell us where we have come from as well as where we're going. These doctrines show us just how helpless we are if left to ourselves. We are totally helpless if left to ourselves. Indeed, we cannot so much as even come to Christ for salvation unless the Father who sent him first draws us to himself. For man is nothing but a slave to sin, we confess, and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. But this, of course, we recognize is not the way it used to be. Because we believe that when God created man from the dust of the earth, he made him and formed him in his own image and likeness. You see, boys and girls, there was once a time when man was good and just and holy. There was once a time when man was able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. Before man's fall into sin, man could, could look at God and behold God, and then he could, could act like God and, and live as God called him to live. He could live in all ways according to the will of God. He was able to know God and enjoy God aright. At face value, when we consider humanity, we consider the the sun, the moon, and the stars, as David once did, humanity would seem to be so small and insignificant. And so we could say with David, what is, what is man? Man is nothing. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you should care for him. And yet the Bible shows us that at the creation of the world, man was the most significant act of all creation. As Psalm 8 describes, man was given the place of of honor over all that God had made. God made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He was given dominion over the birds of the air and over the fish of the sea and over every creeping thing that creeped along the earth. And, and he was blessed by God. Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed him. And God said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all that I have made. And so man being made in God's image stood in a special relationship, not only to, to the animals and to the rest of creation, but also he stood in a, in a special relationship to God himself. For, for unlike the animals, man was made not only to, to rule, but also to relate, to live in a special fellowship and communion with the God who made him. The animals, of course, knew something of, of God's provision. But our first parents knew God's love. They knew God's kindness. They knew the kindness of a God who didn't just create them and then leave them, but a God who, who stayed with them and dwelt with them. 
And so we certainly reject all such thoughts of evolution that, that suggest man came from monkeys who came from fish and so on. But we believe that in distinct, creative, crowning act, Adam was formed from the dust of the ground and, and the breath of life was breathed into his nostrils by God himself so that he became a, a living creature, the, the crowning jewel of all creation. As he walked and talked with God, his heart and his mind were directed towards God in love and thankfulness. When he considered the, the mindfulness of God toward him, he could not help but say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is, is your name in all the earth. For unlike the way humanity is today in the beginning, man was not so concerned with his own name. But he was content with his lot in life. He was content to to extol the name of the Lord. Having been fashioned in God's own image, it's not that man was simply created morally or spiritually neutral, but he was endowed by God with goodness, justice, and holiness. He was fully capable as a prophet to know God and, and to proclaim the word of God in truth. He was fully capable as a priest to to serve God faithfully in the garden, that, that sanctuary of God. He was fully capable as a king to, to rule under God's rule and to rule over himself and to rule over the rest of creation. There was once a time when man could say, my food is to do the will of my Father who made me. That's what I love to do. That's what I live to do. I can't imagine doing anything else. All his thoughts, all his affections and desires and motivations were pure. Which is to say they weren't mixed or, or mingled as ours often are today. For example, even the, the good things we do, the things that we do out of love for God and love for neighbor, often mingled and, and mixed with desires to, to get credit for doing those things. We like our egos to be stroked. But that's not the way it used to be. In the beginning, man's motivations weren't mixed or mingled. They weren't tainted or tangled. They didn't need to be tried through fire so as to remove the, the dross, to remove the, the sin from the good. But they were pure. He was good, just, and holy, able in his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. In the beginning, we had a will that was totally free. Free to live for God. Free to choose for God. Free to love God and live for God according to the will of God. So boys and girls, what happened? What happened to that will that used to be so free? What happened to man? He used to be so just, good, and holy. Why isn't man that way anymore? Well, Article 14 gives us the answer, doesn't it? That when he was in honor, he did not understand it. And did not recognize his excellence, but he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. Adam's sin was an act of free will. This is why one pastor has noted that speaking about the, the fall into sin can at times be almost misleading because it's not as though Adam accidentally fell into sin. It's not that he just accidentally stumbled into it. 
It's not as though his rebellion against God was something he didn't really mean to do. When man fell into sin, he fell headlong into sin. His rebellion was was high-handed. Of his own will and volition, man voluntarily took the plunge into sin and death and ruin. It was was murder in the first degree. Premeditated, carefully considered, spiritual suicide. It was in Adam's power as a prophet to oppose the devil with the word of God. It was in Adam's power as a priest to to keep that garden sanctuary pure of that evil. It was in his power as a king to to recognize the serpent as an enemy of God and to crush his head right then and there. He wasn't forced into eating the fruit of the tree. But when he was in honor, he did not understand. He took it for granted. He did not recognize his excellence, but he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. He transgressed the commandment of life, often referred to as the the covenant of life or the covenant of creation. He transgressed that covenant of life, and so he, he severed himself from God who was his true life. And he corrupted his whole nature. And this corruption, we'll see more fully in Article 15, was was imputed to the whole of the human race. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Adam was our representative. When he broke God's covenant of life, we broke God's covenant of life. When Adam severed the bonds of friendship and fellowship, we did too. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. As the prophet says in Hosea chapter 6, like Adam, we have all transgressed the covenant and have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. As Paul says in Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man, and so death reigned through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in that willful, rebellious, high-handed fall into sin, man made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked and perverse and corrupt in all his ways. This, of course, is the doctrine referred to as total depravity. When man fell into sin, there was not one aspect of man that was left untouched or, or untainted by sin. So even the, the best of his works were nothing but filthy rags. It impacted the whole of man, no part of man. His thoughts, his words, his actions was, was left untouched. He became corrupt in all his ways. His depravity was total. That free will which he had at creation became enslaved to sin, so that his whole nature became bent towards rebelling against God, unable whatsoever to, to make himself right with God. He became totally and undeniably helpless, dead in his sins and trespasses. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is pressing upon his readers here in Romans chapter 3. Nor that he might exclude all boasting, nor that he might demolish any sense of of self-sufficiency, nor that every mouth may be stopped. He pulls together a plethora of Old Testament passages to to make the point clear, to to show that the Scriptures speak with one voice when it comes to the, the helplessness of man. None is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks after God, for all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. With these words, Paul is showing us the universality of sin. All have turned aside. Everyone who has ever walked in the face of the earth, Christ being the only exception, has forsaken the Lord and has hated the Lord in his heart. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues only to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. God gave us mouths to glorify him and to bless him and to bless our brothers and sisters. That gift of speech was the the principal means by which we were able to, to talk with God and communicate with God. That gift of the mouth of man was that which set him apart from the rest of creation. With his mouth, he could communicate with God and extol God and praise God. He could speak the the truth of God in righteousness. But not anymore. Now all man ever does with his mouth is curse God and provoke God to anger. Paul goes on to say that their feet are quick to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. In the garden, of course, man walked with God. He walked in the ways of God. But not anymore. Now man's feet only run in one direction, the direction of rebellion. Now man either runs away from God in in shame or he runs at God in anger, but, but never towards God in love and affection. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. No longer does does man even give any thought to his creator. But his eyes are totally blinded by sin. And so he is a fool in all his ways. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight, says Proverbs 9 verse 10. But with no fear of God before his eyes, all the intentions of his heart are only evil all the time. As God saw before the flood in Genesis 6 verse 5, with no fear of God in his eyes, the man, the natural man, loves to call what is good evil and what is evil good. Man transgressed the commandment of life and so he severed himself from God who was his true light. Having become corrupt in all his ways, he forfeited his excellent gifts which he had received from God. He retained none of them except for small traces which are enough only to leave him without excuse. Of course, man didn't lose the image of God altogether as has been suggested by some in the Reformed tradition, but the image of God in man was shattered like a broken mirror so that it could no longer reflect God's goodness and righteousness and holiness as it used to. And so man is guilty and helpless before the God and just judge of the universe. He doesn't have a leg to stand on. There's no good deed of his own that he can, that he can point to or highlight to, to make God forgive him and forget his sins. 
And deep down, all of humanity knows this to be true. Of course, humanity suppresses this truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. But deep down, all of humanity knows that it is guilty before God. As we just heard in the form for baptism, even our little ones are conceived and born in sin, and they are subject to all the misery that sin brings, even the condemnation of God. And so unless God intervenes, we recognize that we are utterly doomed. Unless the Father is gracious to draw us and our children to Christ, we'll never come to Christ on our own. And that's not just because we're, we're some kind of robot without the ability to, to make real choices. It's not because there's some external force that, that keeps us from choosing for Christ. Because unless the Father draws us, we won't ever want to come to Christ. All our affections and desires and wants have become warped and utterly bent out of shape in the fall. So that we crave the very things that bring us ruin. And deep down we know that to be true as well. Because even those of us who have been drawn to Christ, even those of us who know Him and have been born again by his spirit, even those of us who know Christ, yet, yet feel the pull of that old man to, to run away from God and to rebel against God. We still sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, because that's our natural tendency, is to be bent towards going after evil. Indeed, we're totally helpless if left to ourselves. As we confess, all the light in us is turned to darkness, for the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. And there John calls men darkness. And so we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but a slave to sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven, John 3, 27. For who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Romans 8, verse 7. Who can speak of his knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? 1 Corinthians 2, 14. This congregation is God's divine diagnosis of the human condition. Indeed, verses 9 to 20 of Romans 3 are meant to, to drive man to despair. These verses are meant to, to make man see and say, you're right, Lord. I am totally helpless. Please help me. And God breaks through the pride of man by showing him his sin and misery. That's all man really can say. Help me. And this, boys and girls, is why we begin our worship services the way we do. We come into God's worship and we answer that question, where does our help come? And what answer do we give? We don't say it comes from ourselves, it comes from within us. No, we confess our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. This is what God has been gracious to reveal to us. He's been gracious to Show us our helplessness. The desperate diagnosis proclaimed in verses 9 to 20 is 
is answered and alleviated by the divine deliverance set forth in verses 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. At last, a, a divine intervention, a divine intrusion. Yet another instance of a divine but God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. Yes, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Yes, we are totally and undeniably helpless. But we're not hopeless. We're not hopeless. For in his astounding grace and mercy, as just as we have fallen in Adam, so too have we been saved in Christ. Just as we shared in Adam's condemnation, so we've come to share in Christ's justification. For at the cross, says Paul, God put him forward as a propitiation, which is to say God put Christ forward to remove the wrath of God from us, to tear down that dividing wall of hostility that used to be between us and God. And so God redeemed us. When we fell into sin, we became slaves of sin, but God redeemed us. He bought us back the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like that unfaithful bride of Hosea who, who sold herself in, into slavery and God sent Hosea to, to buy her back to redeem her. So God has done for us. He has bought us back from our bondage to sin. As the Apostle Peter says in his first epistle, you've been Ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. Not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is why we sing, on whom but God can we rely? He condescends to see and know the things of heaven and earth below. Congregation, we were totally helpless. And if left to ourselves, we still would be. If left to ourselves, we would still be without hope, being without God in the world, as Paul describes the state of the unbeliever in Ephesians chapter 2. But at last, we who are in Christ have not been left to ourselves. We as parents aren't left to ourselves in the raising of our children. They might be raised in the fear of the Lord. By the grace of God, our children, like Gabriel, aren't left to themselves. But we have a heavenly Father who from the dust lifts up the needy one, who from ashes raises those bowed down. He seats them by his mighty hand and makes them princes of the land. When man fell into sin, he cast his crown to the ground. And the curse of God fell upon him. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But what has God done in the Lord Jesus Christ? In Christ, God has come to us and he's placed those crowns back upon our heads. He's raised us out from the dust of our sin and death and has caused us to be raised with Christ and seated with Christ by his mighty hand in heavenly places. And he's made us to be princes of the land. And this is the story of redeemed humanity. Helpless we may be if left to ourselves, we are not hopeless. For there is 
redemption full and free in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received in faith. And so our hearts are moved, writes one theologian, our hearts are moved as we marvel at the wisdom of God in providing a righteous way of rescue for guilty sinners that does not in any way compromise his justice and holiness. And we marvel also at God's great love in sending his son to accomplish this salvation. This is something we all must always marvel at. We must never take for granted this great salvation or take for granted or, or, or see it as merely perfunctory when, for example, a child is brought forward for the sign of baptism and the, the waters are placed on his or her head. Because that sign and seal is a testament to the reality that God saves helpless sinners. God saves helpless sinners, not on the basis of of who they are or what they've done, but on the basis of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so the question ought to be asked of us, what then is the outcome of this great deliverance and redemption? What effect does this have on our attitudes and lives? What becomes of our boasting, of our sense of of self-sufficiency? And Paul gives the answer in verses 27 and 28. All our boasting is excluded. It is eliminated. All our sense of self-sufficiency is is demolished. As our confession says, who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself? Since Christ says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. And who can produce a single thought? Since he knows that we are not able to do a thing about ourselves, but that our ability and sufficiency is all of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Therefore, what the apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us. God works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will apart from Christ's work, as he teaches us when he says, without me, you can do nothing. In other words, congregation, all of this serves to humble us. When we fell into sin, we became so proud and so arrogant. We continue to see that pride in our hearts, don't we? We continue to, to need to put to death our pride and to, and to hear the word of God when he says that the Lord resists the proud and exalts the humble. Paul shows us that our pride is put to death when we consider the manner in which God has redeemed us in Christ. When we meditate upon his life and his death and his resurrection, we come to see just how helpless we really are and were without him. We learn to say again and again and again, without him, we can do nothing. And this is our confession this morning. Without him, we can do nothing. This is our message to the world. Without him, we can do nothing. This is the message that we as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and the body of Christ places before the the covenant children that we are totally helpless if left to ourselves. That without Christ, we we can do nothing but that it is God who sovereignly and savingly works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. 
This is our humbled state in redemption. This is our hopeful state as well. We know that a day is surely coming when our lowly earthly body shall be transformed into the likeness of Christ's glorious body by the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself, as Paul says in Philippians 3. The day is come when God will exalt us from our humbled state in redemption to our highest state in consummation. We shall see the Son of God as he is in all his glory. In this promise, congregation, we place our hope this morning. In this promise, we rest as we look to God all our days, confessing that all our ability, all our sufficiency, all our help is entirely of him. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that all our sufficiency, all our ability is entirely of you and from you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we would rest in the promise that you will help us until our very last breath, at which time we'll see your Son. Father, we long for the day when our lowly bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. And we'll enter that new city that is not only a garden, but a city, the new Jerusalem. We long for the day when our will will finally be fully free again, free to live for you without the threat of sin and death. We thank you for Christ, Lord, whose food it was to do your will. And we thank you for his spirit who now lives in us and who promises to make his abode within the hearts of our children as well. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For a song of response, we'll sing.